0: Revelation chapter 13. The title of the message, The Final World Government. Last week we looked at the 70 weeks of Daniel. You can listen to that study at the website, CalvaryChapelsantacruz.org. We learned last week that 69 of the 70 prophetic weeks that had to do with Israel and the city of Jerusalem have already been fulfilled. But there's one seven-year period that has yet to be fulfilled. That's future. And we call that seven-year period the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is ahead. And it is something that is going to be happening in the future. And there is in the 70th week of Daniel coming a future world leader. This world leader will be the last dictator this planet will ever see. His reign will be short. His lease will also be short. He's called in the Bible by different names. He's called Antichrist. He's called the man of sin. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince who is to come. He's called the lawless one. There are various names by which he is identified. But here in chapter 13, we'll see he's called the beast. Because that's how God sees him. He sees him as a beast, a ruthless, horrible creature that uh, is evil incarnate. So in chapter 13, we have two new figures introduced. And again, the time frame of these events, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. And the tribulation period begins with the confirmation of a covenant that this man of sin, this Antichrist, makes with the Jewish people. And it ends, seven years later, with the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So when does the tribulation period begin? It begins with the covenant that the man of sin makes, the agreement that the man of sin makes with the Jewish people, Daniel 9.27. And it ends with the physical return of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, to the earth. And when he returns, the seven years come to an end. So in our text, we have a number of concepts. We have the description of the first beast. We have the world's response to the beast and to the dragon. We see that the authority that has been granted to the beast, the accountability of the beast, the description of yet another beast, and then the number of the beast. And all of these things are things that are in our passage this morning. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 13. Then I stood, this is John the Apostle writing, of course. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And we'll stop there. So the description of the beast. The description of the beast that is is that he, first of all, rose up out of the sea. The sea, a wild and unruly place to the Jewish people, a place of confusion and terror. And so it represents the confusion and terror and wildness of humanity apart from Christ. So the beast rises up out of the tumultuous sea of humanity. And remember, Jesus said that in the last days that men's hearts would fail them for fear of the coming of those things which are coming upon the earth. Out of the arena of that kind of fear and that kind of anxiety, the Antichrist will surface. And it also tells us in our text that he has seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. We don't have to guess as to what this means. The seven heads were seven hills, on which the woman sits, Revelation 17.9, always has been a reference to the city of Rome. And seven kings, also mentioned in Revelation 17.10, a reference to seven of the Roman emperors, or perhaps world empires. So the seven heads refer to the place, Of the beast where the woman sits, the city of Rome, and the seven kings that are connected to the various Roman empires or emperors in the past. And the ten horns, of course, represent the ten kings of Daniel chapter 7. On his head's a blasphemous name, and so there's another description of the beast. He is on his heads, wearing this blasphemous name. Now, just look at the the title for this individual as Antichrist. Antichrist, all by itself, is blasphemous enough. Uh, 1 John 2.18 is the reference. Little children, it's the last hour, and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. The word Antichrist... Antichristos in Greek, anti being the prefix, it either means instead of or opposite of. It can have either meaning. And anti, instead of Christ, or opposite of, opposite of Christ. So the Antichrist contains both of those kinds of characteristics. He is seeking to be a replacement for Jesus Christ on the earth, this final dictator, And he's also seeking to oppose and be opposite of Jesus Christ in every way as he serves in his short-lived reign as dictator on the earth. And, of course, John points out in that text that many antichrists have already come that have fulfilled the same kind of role, but this is the antichrist, the big one of all of them. And he is a horrible individual, and on his heads there is a blasphemous name. We're not told what the name is, but again, the meaning of Antichrist itself is blasphemous enough. Verse 2 tells us that he uh, was like a leopard, so there's simile there. He wasn't a leopard, but he was like one. His feet were like the feet of a bear. He wasn't a bear, but his feet were like the feet of the bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Again, we don't have to guess as to what this means. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that these animals represent kingdoms in the past. The lion was representative of the kingdom of Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king that was alive at that time. And then Greece was represented by the leopard and of course Alexander the Great, the greatest of the Greek kings. And then the feet of the bear, the bear represented the Medes and the Persians and they had various kings throughout the history of the Persian Empire. And so each of these characteristics, the characteristics of the of the Grecian Empire, the leopard, very swiftly moving, The characteristics of the Medo-Persian Empire, very dominating and very strong, very sturdy and stable. And the characteristics of Babylon, uh, the king of the beasts, represented by the mouth of the lion. These characteristics and all of their evil are a composite of what the kingdom of Antichrist is going to be all about. His kingdom is going to have the swiftness of the leopard, the feet and the stability and the temporary strength of the Medes and the Persians, and the mouth of the lion, the Babylonian kingdom. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar in his heyday was probably the most egotistical man that was alive at that time, and maybe one of the most egotistical men that had ever lived. And the Lord humbled him for seven years, if you remember, because of his egotistical ways. But he felt like he was responsible for all of the glories of Babylon. Remember that night when he was out on his palace and he was walking around and looking at the hanging gardens of Babylon and the walls of Babylon and the extent of the city of Babylon and he says, Is not this Babylon which I have built by my might and for the glory of my power? I mean, he was really full of himself. And the Lord said, okay, Neb, let's see what I can do with you. And he made him into a wild animal until seven times passed over him. And so he was a crazy man for seven years. That's what God can do to a man that's that's proud like that. And oftentimes he has to. Now the thing that's interesting to me is that when the world looks at this kingdom, it will see this kingdom in a humanistic or glorious perspective. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in Daniel chapter 2. Head of gold, arms and shoulders of silver, belly and chest of bronze, uh, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And it was an image of a man. And it looked like a human being. And it was glorious with these glorious metals. And that's how the world looks at this last day's kingdom. But the way God looks at it, it's a beast. It's brutal. It's ruthless. It's horrible. It's evil. But the world often doesn't see that and is waiting for an antichrist to come. We need somebody that will solve our economic problems. We need someone who will solve the uh, ethnic conflicts that are taking place all over the world. We need someone that will solve the religious disputes and dilemmas that are taking place. We need someone who will solve the military issues that will create stability and peace. We need someone to do these things for us. And it used to be that anybody that said the world wants these things used to be called a conspirator or somebody who is into conspiracy theories no longer, it's just out in the open. Everybody is saying it. We want a one world government. We want somebody to take control. We want something that uh, takes the control out of human beings. We don't want democracy. We want dictatorship or socialism or some other form of taking away human freedoms. People are willing to sacrifice human freedoms for someone to be in control. Someone that will solve the complex problems that exist in the world today because of many, many factors. And so, we see how God describes this creature, this Antichrist. He is a beast. Now, notice also the description. It says that the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. The dragon gave him his power, dunamis. Dunamis. You should receive power, Jesus said to his disciples, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, here, the devil is giving the Antichrist his power. His throne was given to him by the dragon, and his great authority was also given to him by the dragon. And again, the dragon is the devil, Revelation 12, 9. We don't have to guess about these things. Now why does God give the antichrist this kind of reign and this kind of authority during these years? What's the reason for it? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 give us the reason. To the question, or the answer to the question, why God allows this Antichrist to come into power? Why does God allow Satan to give the Antichrist this kind of authority? Why are these things going to happen? Second Thessalonians says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because, here's the answer, because... They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The answer to the question, why does God allow it, is because this is what the human race wants. And God always does that. He always gives the human race what it wants, a uh, Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth that we know about God, so God gives us up to uncleanness. God gives us up to a debased mind. God gives us up to these kinds of things that we want. He doesn't keep the the restraints on our behavior any longer. He lifts the restraints and says, okay, these are the things you want, I'm going to let you have them. And in the case of the Antichrist, not only does he let the world have what they want, but he sends them strong delusions so that they would believe the lie. And it's only because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So these are individuals that had a chance to hear the gospel. These are individuals who clearly knew who Jesus Christ was. They were very aware of the gospel message and what eternity is all about and what heaven is all about and what hell is all about and what forgiveness of sins is all about. But they said, no, I don't want it. I don't want it anywhere near me. And God will not force a single person to believe. He will not force a single individual to come into the kingdom of God. He will let people have their own decision. He will give them that kind of free will and he respects free will so much that even if that free will means that that person will spend an eternity separated from him, he's willing to give them that free will. Let's get rid of this idea that God sends anyone to hell. That is nonsense. God doesn't send people to hell. People decide themselves. Again, if anyone finds himself in heaven, he has only God to thank. If he finds himself in hell, he has only himself to blame. That's the way it is, biblically and according to the character and nature of God. So that's why this power was given to the devil during this time to give the Antichrist this kind of reign. Notice also the description, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads... As if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Well, again, since the heads were representative of the Roman Empire, a world dominating empire, this could, this deadly wound being healed, could refer to the revival of the Roman Empire. And as we'll see, the whole world marvels at this. I mean, the Roman Empire hasn't been, as an empire, a strong force until the se- since the 7th century A.D. But we have the world empires that existed before, and some have actually said there are seven great world empires in history. Old Babylonia, and then the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, then the younger Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and now the revived Roman Empire, of which the beast is head. And the whole world marvels. And I tend to be conservative in my interpretation of these kinds of things and so that's where I leave it. I think that makes the most sense but you can check out all the other options that are out there and there are a million explanations as to what it means that his head had been mortally wounded and was healed. The world's response to the dragon and to the beast verse 3 The second part of the verse. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? The world marveled and followed the beast. My question is, why didn't they marvel at and why weren't they amazed at Jesus? I mean, there's no comparison between this evil, malevolent dictator and the Son of God who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood who prays for us daily at the right hand of the Father, who sympathizes with our weakness, who's with us in temptation, who's going to lead us as the captain of our salvation directly into the presence of God in heaven, who has a purpose for our lives, who strengthens us every day, who lets us fellowship with Him in our sufferings. There's no one like Jesus. Yet the world says no to Jesus and says yes to this beast. It's shocking, it's horrible, it's tragic, it's sad. And our hearts need to be broken at the fact that people don't value the Son of God as he deserves to be valued. But Jesus answers the question himself as to why they weren't amazed at him. He says in, first, or in the Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 9, 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the reason why people aren't completely enamored of Jesus Christ. And in love with him and amazed by him, it's because human beings love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light exposes what I do. And if I want to keep doing what I want to do, if I want to be the king of my own life, then I don't want any light on the subject. So I don't want to come to Jesus because he's the light of the world. And I want him exposing my heart. So I keep in him at arm's distance. That's the closest I'll let him get. And beyond that, he's much further away from my heart and my affections. This is why the world is not amazed at Jesus and instead is marveling at and is following the beast. They followed the beast. They should have been following Jesus. And they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. The word worship means to prostrate oneself, to kiss. They prostrated themselves before this beast. They kissed in reverence this beast. And they worshiped this beast. And this is what they said as they worshiped the beast who is like the beast? That's worship that belongs only to Yahweh and only to the Son of God. Remember what happened when the children of Israel were delivered from the horrible uh, possible fate of being destroyed by the Egyptians? There they were up against the Red Sea and mountains on either side and... The Lord opened up the Red Sea and they passed through on dry land and came to the other side. And then Moses' sister Miriam led in a song of worship for the entire nation. And that's one of the lines in the song Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? I mean, and the answer is no one. You can scan the universe, there's no one that even comes close. But yet, that's the same kind of thing they're giving to the beast. Who is like the beast? They think he's the best. They think that he's worthy of all praise. And they give him worship. And they also hold him in awe because in their minds no one is able to make war with him. And so they're in awe of him because of his military might and power. Let me tell you something. There is someone who will make war with this beast. And he'll be coming out of heaven riding on a white horse and all the armies of heaven with him riding on their horses. And he'll come to the earth and his word that comes out of his mouth will slay the Antichrist and his armies in a moment. No swords will have to be drawn. No battle and hand-to-hand combat will need to be engaged in. It will be simply a judgment judgment directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God and the king of kings. He is the one who is able to make war with the beast and overcome him. And that's exactly what will happen. And I just gave you a preview of Revelation 19. Because that's what's going to happen there. They worship the beast. Personalizing this, here's a question. Is our worship of things, or our worship of people, or our worship of riches, or our worship of pleasure, or any other thing that we might worship, how is that any different than the worship of the beast? It's all idolatry, it's all wrong, it's all sin. I think it was Tozer that wrote, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are not worthy of Him. Making something else into a God that is not God at all. And as Pastor Chuck likes to say, We worship that which is our master passion. And we make gods out of whatever is the master passion of our lives. And if the master passion of my life is material possessions, that's what I end up worshiping. Or if it's fame or fortune or notoriety or anything else, that becomes my God. And We say it would be ridiculous for us to form a little mud image and heat it up in a kiln somewhere and... Put it up on a mantle and worship that little image that we've just made. We wouldn't do that. We're too sophisticated for that. But we make a lot of other things in our minds and in our hearts that we worship. And these things have to be repented of. They have to be rejected in favor of the only living and true God. So there's authority also that has been granted to the beast. Verse 5. He was given a mouth. Note that. He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, which is 1,260 days by the Babylonian prophetic calendar, and is three and a half years. So that's how long his strong authority lasts, three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Notice that, though. He was given authority. He was given a mouth speaking great things. It was granted to him to make war. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation. It's borrowed authority and it's short-lived. It only lasts three and a half months. This is Satan's last hurrah through the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist day of infamy. And that's all he gets. That's all the devil gets is this three and a half years. And after that, the Lord's done with him. And done with the Antichrist. But all that he has has been given to him, allowed to him for a season and for God's purposes. He blasphemes God. He blasphemes God's name, which is the essential character and nature of God. You are what your name is. He blasphemes against God's tabernacle, the place where God dwells, and he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. Now at this time, when the Antichrist is in power, who are those that are dwelling in heaven? Two classes. Number one, those that belong to the church, because we're in heaven already. We've been raptured, and that's where we've been taken. And secondly, angels. So he blasphemes those that dwell in heaven. He blasphemes the church because we are the bride of Christ. And he hates Christ and he hates anything connected to him. And he blasphemes angels because these were the faithful angels. These were the the, uh, two-thirds that didn't rebel with him. These are the ones that have continued to worship and serve Yahweh. And he blasphemes them because he hates what they did and he hates what they represent. Just blasphemy, just spewing out of his mouth these evil things against all of these various aspects of God and what he does. And it was granted him to make war with the saints. These would be tribulation believers, verse 7. And it was granted to him to overcome them. Not ultimately, but only temporarily. In other words, their physical lives in their earthly bodies would come to an end because it was granted to Antichrist to make war with the saints and overcome them. What it was granted for him to do was to kill tribulation believers. If they didn't take the mark of the beast and they were believers, they would be killed. It was granted to the Antichrist to be able to do that. But that's all that the Antichrist could do. All he could do, the limit of his power, was to kill believers that became believers during the tribulation period he couldn't do anything else that's all he could do is kill their body but remember what Jesus said don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do That's all that the Antichrist could do. He could kill the body. But he didn't have any control over what happened after that. He had no control over the fact that the minute that person dies, that tribulation believer, in that very second, in that very moment, he is given a new body and is directly in the presence of God because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that was completely out of Antichrist's hands. He had no control over it limited in his power. Isn't that wonderful? Hey, the worst thing that could happen to me is I could die. The best thing that could happen to me is that I could die. So it's really not something that I'm particularly afraid of. I don't want anybody to stab me to death. I mean, I have preferred ways to die and preferred ways that I'd rather not die. I don't want to be stabbed to death. What was I telling you yesterday, Sherry, about the way I didn't want to die? Can you remember? Some other way. Can't remember. I don't mind airplanes. Those are kind of cool. I mean, you get get an e-ticket ride on the way down. You get to witness to everybody who knows that the plane's going to crash and you're going to die. So I'm thinking, this is outstanding. That's not a bad way to die. And you don't feel a thing. Whatever. That's all the Antichrist could do as he overcame them, is destroy their bodies. And verse 8 tells us that all who dwell on the earth will worship this beast whose names have not been written in the book of life. So this tells us who the beast worshipers are. The beast worshipers are those whose names are not written in the book of life. And that also tells us that those who do not worship The beast are those whose names are written in the book of life. Book of life, interesting book. Mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Mentioned in a couple of different contexts in the Old Testament. Paul was certain that there were women within the church of Philippi and also a man named Clement and many of his fellow workers whose names were in the book of life, Philippians 4.3. So their names are definitely in there. Paul knew that to be true. Revelation chapter 20, we'll get to it. The great white throne judgment, the books are opened, and the unbelieving are judged according to what is written in the books. And another book is op- opened also, the book of life. And it tells us in Revelation 20.15 that anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So how do you get your name in the book of life? It's simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose from the dead. Believe that he ascended into heaven. Believe that he is your Savior. And accept him as your Savior and as your Lord. And your name is in the book of life. Refuse to do that, your name's not in the book of life. It's that simple. God's word is so clear. So what is the accountability of this beast? Verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So that's what the Antichrist is going to be doing and all those that work under him. They're going to be leading people into captivity, into imprisonment. And they're going to be killing with the sword. Now, those who do those things during these years, those who lead into captivity, they themselves will be going into captivity. Those who kill with the sword, they themselves must be killed with the sword. And then this last sentence in verse 10, and here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What does that mean? Well, isn't it our heart's cry, and isn't it our heart's longing that the Lord Jesus rule and reign? Isn't it our desire that one day all of the wrongs are made right and justice occurs in God's way and in His time? Absolutely. And so the patience and the faith of the saints is to wait for the Lord Jesus to be the one who Leads into captivity those who themselves led into captivity others. And to kill with the sword those who themselves killed others with the sword during these seven years, and particularly during the last three and a half years. That's the patience and the faith of the saints. So believe me, during this seven years, and particularly the last three and a half years, copies of the book of Revelation will be available people will be reading this book very hungrily, very eagerly. And as they read the book, they'll see what is coming to those that are oppressing them, and that will help them be patient. That will help them believe because they know that this suffering is very, very temporary, and they know that their oppressors and their persecutors are going to get what's coming to them. That will help them endure. That will help them continue to be faithful. That's the patience and the faith of the saints. Very different than our present day when justice takes forever. That won't be the case then. It will be very swift, it will be very decisive, and it will be 100% accurate. Now we have the description of yet another beast, as if the first one wasn't enough. Verses 11 through 17. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So there's the description of this second beast. Later we're going to see that he's called the false prophet. So let's just call him that. He's the false prophet. His job is to exalt the first beast in whatever way he possibly can. He comes up out of the earth, verse 11, which tells us he's human. He had two horns like a lamb, also in verse 11, which tells us that he appears to be peaceful. And he appears to be gentle and harmless. He's a nice guy. You wouldn't mind sitting down and sharing an In-N-Out burger with him. He appears to be pretty harmless and peaceful and safe. But the words that come out of his life are venomous and destructive. It's like the false prophets in the Old Testament that Peter writes about in 2 Peter 2. These false prophets, these false teachers, they bring in secretly destructive heresies. But you know one of the main characteristics of the false prophets in the Old Testament? You Want to know what it was? It wasn't so much... What they said, it was what they didn't say. They often said, peace, peace. When the real prophets of God were saying, judgment, you better repent. But the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, everything is good. There's no sin there's no accountability to God. There's no judgment that's coming. That's what the false prophets were saying. And you can look in the message of the false prophets and find that consistent approach. They were dangerous because of what they didn't say, as well as what they did say. And the New Testament false prophet or false teacher has a different gospel. He preaches another Jesus, different than the Jesus. Of the New Testament, and of course, there is a completely different result as a result of his proclamation. And so, this false prophet, this second beast, two horns like a lamb, he appears peaceful, gentle, and harmless, but it's a big charade. It's not true. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. But just think for a minute about the real Jesus, the Lord Jesus. What did he say? He said, come to me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus really is meek. And he really is gentle. And he really is the Savior. And he really does take our burden upon himself. He's the real thing. But this is just a big false facade and a big charade that is going on with this false prophet. Don't you just love the real Jesus? He is just worthy to be worshipped, isn't he? And followed. What a Lord. And he spoke like a dragon, we're told also in verse 11. Does that remind you of anything? The dragon slash serpent shows up first time, Genesis chapter 3. Indeed, Hath God said, (laughs) You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? (laughs) And And Eve's just getting sucked into this whole argument. And eventually she takes the fruit and eats it. And then gives it to Adam and he eats it. Deceived. God's holding out on you, Eve. There's something more that he doesn't want you to have. Why did he tell you to not eat of that one tree? He knows, he knows that if you eat that tree, for the fruit of that tree, you're going to be as God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't want you to have something really, really cool. So he's giving you this prohibition. It's all deception. You ever heard that deception before? Why can't I do that? Mommy, mommy, why can't I play in the freeway? (laughs) Well, it's real simple, son. You'll get killed. And so people complain, why can't I commit adultery? Why can't I look at pornography? Why can't I get drunk? Why can't I smoke dope? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? And God says, it's real simple, son. It'll kill you. And sin is not Bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And God says no to it because he doesn't want his kids that he loves so much to be destroyed by something that will destroy them. But the deception. He speaks like a dragon, this false prophet. His words destroy people's lives. He's a liar and a thief. Remember what Jesus said? The thief doesn't come except for to kill and to steal and destroy. He said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, John 10.10. By the way, all these references are in your notes so you can look them up later. I just didn't write out all the scriptures so that you could do the work of looking up the references. You'll have more fun that way. So he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. His authority or influence motivates the worship of this first beast. He performs great signs. He deceives those that dwell on the earth by those signs. And remember, he was granted to do these signs. Now Israel had been warned about these things. Deuteronomy 13 If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rose up within Israel and and did a sign or accomplished a wonder and said, hey, let's go follow after other gods. Gods that they had not known. Gods different from the true and the living God. They were not to follow that false prophet or that dreamer of dreams. But instead they were to take their hands on him, take him outside of the city and stone him to death. Because he had a destructive... Horrible message. Well, that's what this false prophet is going to do. He's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth by his signs. If people had discernment, they wouldn't listen. But they don't want discernment. They want to do anything this false prophet says. And he tells those that dwell on the earth, verse 14, to make an image to the beast. And so the people on the earth actually do this. They make an image to the beast. What is the image to the beast? I have no idea. I don't know how this is going to play itself out. But it's some form of image that is going to become animate through the power that is granted to the false prophet. He causes the image of the beast to speak. And again, how that happens, I don't know. We'll be in heaven watching it from that vantage point. But look at what happens here. They actually create an image to the beast and they worship this image. The things that people will do as a result of lies pretty amazing really six million Jews died during World War II because of lies there's a master race the Aryan people and we've got to purge the gene pool of any form of racial mixture that somehow taints the Aryan blood let's go after the Jews let's kill them the final solution People believed it. They were caught up in it. The Gestapo believed it. The SS believed it. The death squads, they believed it. Those that ran the death camps, they believed it. And they did these things because they were deceived. It's amazing. The suicide bombers, they'll strap bombs to their chest and cover over with heavy garments and walk into train stations and blow themselves up and hundreds of others. Why? Because they believed a lie. They believed something that was not true. Or someone in the United States goes into a, back in the 70s, the Est Forums, reinvented now as the Landmark Forums, and they're told that they create their own reality. They're told that you're a god if you just realize the divinity within you. You're it. You have it. And so they go out from those places and they treat everyone as if they are God. Marriages break up. Families become estranged. People go into debt. Lives are ruined and destroyed. Why? Because of lies that were believed. That's what happens. Destruction of lives everywhere. And here we have it these people are willing to make an image to the beast and actually worship the image of the beast, all because of lies. He causes all, verse 16, to receive a mark. This mark goes on the right hand or on the foreheads. You can't buy or sell without this mark. Now again we don't know the final, final form of what this mark will be like and we can easily see technologically speaking how easy this, this would be today and we can see everything's heading in the direction of a cashless society the money supply eventually you know the global economies are so complicated and so distorted and so messed up that it's, and so fragile that a whole country can be rendered bankrupt in a matter of moments. That's got to change. Somebody's going to change that. Antichrist will. Take control of the economy. You've got to have this mark to be able to buy and sell. But I want you to notice something. That the worship of the beast, verse 15, is related to, connected to, contextually, with the receiving of this mark on the right hand or on the foreheads. It's my opinion that this mark will not be received by anyone by accident. Oh, gee, I just ran out of groceries, you know, and I really wanted to be able to buy something, and I didn't have any cash left, so I went down to the center and I received the mark, and now I can't go to heaven? Now I'm judged eternally? It's going to be a lot bigger deal than that. When people receive the mark of the beast, they're going to be doing it knowing that they're entering into the system of Antichrist and the system of the false prophet and the worship of him. It's going to be a choice that they make that is going to go way beyond just pure economics. And when they do it, they've just sealed their own eternal destiny. And we'll see about that later on in the text. It won't be received by accident. People will know what they're doing. And the section closes with verse 18, the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now there's no question that the number 6 is the number of man. Number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. The number eight is the number of new beginnings. Number three is the number of trinity. So here we've got three, which is the number of trinity or triunity, combined with 666, which is the number of man. So this is the trinity of man, or the trinity of humanism, if you would. Now, those that have tried to use numerology or numbers, techniques, numerical equivalents to determine who this 666 is, have come up with hundreds of possible explanations. I consider those attempts a waste of time. I'm bored by them. Whenever I see anybody writing about this stuff, turn the page. It's just not interesting to me. But when I see the number 666, it's it's clear. It has to do with the exaltation of human being, Or humanity or creation in some way. And it has to do with an attempt to replace or counteract the perfect trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So this is the perfect trinity of creation. Really the imperfect trinity of creation. Could refer, have a reference to Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. But again... All of those things are speculation. Thomas Torrance wrote, This evil trinity, 666, apes the holy trinity, 777, but always falls short and fails. That's the thing to note. Man's solutions always fall short and fail. It's a depressing chapter to know that these things are coming to pass. But it's an important one. It's an enlightening one. It gives us insight as to what's going on in the direction of the whole world. People need to know this. They need to know that God has stated these things in his word so that they can be properly warned. And indeed it is an incentive to evangelism. Did you know that these things are coming down? You need to receive Christ, man, so that you can be counted worthy to escape those things that are coming on the earth and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus said that, Luke twenty-one thirty-six. We need to tell people. But just consider the Lord Jesus. He's the opposite of everything that's in this chapter. He's the stone cut without hands that puts an end to man's kingdom. becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, Daniel 2. He's going to be worshipped as king of kings and lord of lords. He will glorify the Father and glorify his holy name, not blaspheme the Father and his holy name. He will protect and preserve his saints rather than destroy them and lie to them. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way to God, not to the beast. He's the truth. There's no deception in him. He's the life. There's no death in him either. His miracles point to himself, not to another as the Son of God and as the Messiah, the Savior. And he doesn't force submission, but he woos us to himself. Draws us to himself by his love. And his number, as part of the perfect trinity, 777, and as the author of all new beginnings through his resurrection, 888, if you will, is the perfect number. It's the number of perfection in new beginnings. See, Jesus is entirely other than this horrible drama that is going to be lived out on the earth during the tribulation. It's wonderful to be in him. But I tell you, our heart needs to break for those that aren't. Time might be short. It might be real short. Let's get at it. I know I'm going a little long this morning, but I watched part of a clip this last week from reality down in Carpinteria. Britt Merrick was talking about what God did in his church last week. He was restless. He didn't know what he was going to be preaching about that morning. He had three passages, three texts. It was a seven-year celebration of the anniversary of their church. And he was troubled because neither, neither of the passages that he'd selected seemed to fit. He just wasn't settled with any of them. So he just went to prayer. And he felt like the Lord was speaking to him. You just continue in prayer until the service starts. I'll show you what to talk about. He finally opened up to a passage in Luke 9 about discipleship. And he called the church to a place of real discipleship. One of the things he said is, it's time for us to stop playing church and get serious with the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that line. And he called the people forward for prayer, to really do business with the Lord. And guess what happened? Over a 1,000 people came forward for prayer, just to cry out to God and do business with the Lord. Just a wonderful time of revival. And I'm praying and I'm hoping, Lord, just cause it to come north. Just cause it to come north. Cause it to breathe through Santa Cruz County, through Calvary Chapel, through my heart. There's a revival that you want to bring, Lord, so I'm going to stand in this little circle, and I want you to begin with the one standing in this circle. You know, that's what I've been praying. That's what I hope happens. Time may be short. If there's any time... To put aside foolish and unnecessary things, it's now. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? Let's pray. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to just reflect on awesome and very difficult realities to consider. But yet, Father, you, you don't shrink back from telling us the truth. You tell us the truth so that we might embrace the truth and not a lie and so we pray that you would work among us work in our hearts work in our lives move by your spirit in our midst and in our hearts and as we're in that place I want to talk to anyone here this morning that has yet to receive Jesus Christ this morning is your opportunity to do that. Receive Jesus. He's the Son of God. How do you do that? You just open up your heart and you just pray. And you say, Lord, come into my life. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need my life to be changed. Would you come into my life? Would you save me from my sins? I receive you, Lord, by faith. It's simple. If you really mean it, it's as simple as a prayer of confession and repentance to bring you into the kingdom of God and start a brand new life. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. That can mean you this morning. You can be a new creation in Christ. I'd like you just to stand if you are going to receive Christ this morning. Just stand right where you're sitting in the same chair, same seat, same place. Just stand up. I want to have a word of prayer with you and lead you into the prayer that can invite Jesus Christ to come in your heart. Now's the morning. Now's the time. Now's a great opportunity for you. How many opportunities have you ever had in your life to actually have your sins forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life? This may be the last chance you have. You have no guarantees. Do it now. Do it right now. Stand right now. Go ahead. Anybody this morning. Okay, let's stand together and close in a worship song, shall we?